So, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 26 through 38 this morning, or this and semi this afternoon. Last week, we learned that Luke is the author of the book of Luke, right? He's a physician. Yes, he's a physician. Uh, he's a very smart guy, and he also writes in such a way for us to simply understand it. We also know that he wrote this from a historian point of view, so he did a lot of research, right? He did a lot of interviews, and we see it come out in the way that he writes, because oftentimes he will write um, things that only somebody would know if they talked to the person in that situation. Uh, hence the, the stories of Mary uh, and, and other people that we're going to read through this book. But today we're going to be discussing uh, the, basically the Christmas story, right? The conception uh, of Jesus uh, with Mary uh, when Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her, hey, you're going to give birth to the Savior of the entirety of the human race, right? Like, whoa, that's a weird day, right? Uh, so we're going to discuss that this morning. There's a lot of things that we're going to break down, some things that you probably never have heard of, uh, but it's very important necessary for us to understand because the whole Bible in the entirety points to Jesus, and now we're going to see where everything is going to just divulge and, and come forward right here in this scene. Uh, a lot of prophecies are going to uh, unfold and be fulfilled just by this right here. So let's pray, and then let's jump into it. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Lord, that he would help us to understand uh, the words that you have given to us. Lord, that we would be encouraged and exhorted. Lord, even rebuked if needed. And, Father, that we would understand just how awesome and miraculous this, this story is. Lord, and, and what happens here and what transpired through Mary. And, Lord, we love you. We give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entirety of the scripture, and then we'll go back, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the very first thing we see in verse 26 is that it's actually the sixth 
In the sixth month, the angel again, Gabriel, we saw him earlier in the chapter, but previously, six months prior, he went to uh, Zacharias, who, in unbelief, did not believe that his wife, Elizabeth, would have a child. Now, why did he not believe? Because, logically speaking, she should not have had a child. She should not have been able to conceive a child because she was old, of old age. She was past the age of childbearing. And so through unbelief, uh, he asked, how is, that gonna ha- how is that so? Right? Show me proof. Show me a sign. And we see then Gabriel, he then tells him, well, you're going to be mute, son, for the next five months and not going to be able to say anything. Elizabeth conceives, and it says in verse 24 that she hid herself for five months. So now in verse 26, we have jumped forward one month. Now, Gabriel again comes and visits, but he visits Mary. Now, one of the interesting things about Mary, and one of the interesting things about the book of Luke in general, is that Luke writes a lot about women. So, ladies, this is an awesome book for you. You are not excluded from the Gospels. God, or Jesus, or God, Jesus always honored women when he was on earth. And so, we see a lot of these stories popping up with these women. Mary was highly favored, Mary was chosen, and Mary was a very, very young girl. And one of the things we come to find out is that she was actually a teenage girl. Isn't that crazy? Sometimes we we think like, oh, Mary's probably like in her 30s or something. You know, no, she was around probably 16 years old. So as we read this story, imagine, right? Imagine what she's going through as a 16-year-old girl. We got plenty of, of, of teenage girls over here. There's not a single girl on this side. There's one girl. What's up with that? We just, we only got one guy on this side. <laughs> uh, you're funny. That it is the same spot. It's super identical. That's crazy. I didn't, even, I didn't even notice that. But anyways, so we've got all you teenage girls. Imagine, imagine Jesus. And imagine Gabriel, right? The angel of the Lord appears to you and then, and then says this to you, right? You could only imagine how insane that would be. And, and putting in perspective of her age allows us to understand really how much faith this young girl had. And that age doesn't matter when it comes to faith. It doesn't, it, age doesn't matter when it comes to God being able to use you. You don't have to be a certain age for God to use you in your life. Here's a young girl who is going to be the mother, the son of God. That's crazy. I mean, that, that's a special honor, right? And we see that. So, six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel approaches Mary, and we see that he was sent by God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, chronologically speaking, this is the first time that, the, uh, that Nazareth is mentioned, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And there's something really special about Nazareth. Anybody know? Besides Jesus is from there. <laughs> The other thing that's special about it is that it's not special, right? Nazareth is remarkable because it is unremarkable. Jesus did not come from, you know, the top end of society, right? I mean, you guys all know the story of when he was born. He was born in a manger, you know, right by the animals pooping and feeding, and and there was no room, right? So we understand that Jesus comes from the lowly of lows, like, he comes from a, a, a town that has probably like a, a 
triple digits of the population, right? Very few people, probably 100, 200 people in the town. Nothing was special about Nazareth. And that's, that's comforting for all of us to understand that it does not matter what we come from, right? It doesn't matter what town we're from. It doesn't matter what family we're from. It does not matter that, that God does not care about any of those things. It's the things that we can't, we, can't, um, we can't help but be born into, right? Who cares about your, well, I don't say who cares. There's something special about it, like your nationality and things. But, but in the sense that you're not lesser than anyone else, right? You're not lesser because, you know, uh, you're from a town where there's less people or everyone has a, it has a bad reputation, Right? Like, when I was growing up, I don't know if it's still the same, like, Durham was always, you know, considered, like, not the best of places. Right? Like, oh, you're from Durham? No, like, who cares? Right? <laughs> so, Jesus is from Nazareth, a very unremarkable town. Nazareth uh, was in the general region of Galilee, and it was 15 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, and it was six miles from the closest major road. Right? So, one of the, like, you know, far out country towns here in North Carolina that nobody's ever ever heard of, like uh, Rutherford Town, right? I don't know. There's some weird, uh, it's a county? Uh, I thought it was a town. Rutherfordton, yeah. Uh, Oak City, no. Get out of here. Trying to think. Lizard Lick. Isn't Lizard Lick a town? Lizard Lick, right? It'd be like, Jesus came from Lizard Lick, right? Isn't that where the lizard lick towing came from? Yeah. yeah. So he's from Nazareth. Na- Nazareth had no good water supply. They had one weak well in the center of the village. And now, why am I, why am I saying all this? Okay, we already kind of explained it. But one thing I want to point out, that it is unremarkable. Okay? Look at John chapter 1, verse 43 through 46. I'll, I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It says, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethesda, in the, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says to him, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. It's like one of those towns where it's just, it, it's, I mean, I, I can't think of like a modern day town. I didn't really think about this. But there's, there's so many different cities and towns, even just in America, where it's, there's really nothing good that comes out of it. I'll give you one example that I can think of. We went on a missions trip two years ago to Philadelphia, and we went to a town in Kensington. And in Kensington, it's one of the highest uh, uh I don't know if it's crime rates, but, but drug usage. So when we're walking down the street, and the kids who went can attest to this, uh, you would see, you know, tens of people uh, doing drugs, dealing drugs. You'd see fentanyl needles on the ground. Like, we weren't allowed to wear flip-flops for that very reason, so it wouldn't poke us, and then we'd get addicted to drugs. I'm just kidding. So it just wouldn't poke us, right? I mean, it's, it's diseased and gross, so... When I think of that, you're like, you think well, nothing good can come out of Kensington, right? Because you're born into that situation where it's just, it's horrible, right? And Jesus comes from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's like, well, can anything come uh, out of Nazareth that is good? And Philip's like, well, I'm not going to tell you. Why don't you come and see? It's Jesus himself. 
that Jesus himself can relate to all of us on the lowest level, right? That he himself came from Nazareth. Now, any other supposed king would be from, you know, they would be born in some type of palace and temple. But remember, Jesus was the opposite of what we ever expected. He came in riding on a donkey. Uh, he ate and he sat and he dined with, with sinners. Um, you know, he, he wasn't something special that people, when they saw him, they probably didn't even know who he was, right? That Jesus came to serve. He came to be a servant. He wasn't coming at this point to be a king. Now, he will come back as a king, right? He will come back and he will reign as king. But at this point, he came as a humble and lowly servant, and he came from Nazareth. So Mary, she's in the city of Galilee named Nazareth, and it says that the angel of Gabriel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, it tells us that she was betrothed. How many, how many of you know what being betrothed means? Do we do that nowadays? Kind of. I mean, we don't, we don't use that in our vocabulary, right? Like, when I married Whitney, we never got betrothed. It's we got engaged, right? Now, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding in that day. The first one was the engagement. That was the first uh, stage, the first step was the engagement. Now, this is going to, now understand when, when I talk about this, you're going to be weirded out, but understand this is their culture, okay? This is not what we do nowadays, but it was their culture. So when, when the engagement started, oftentimes when a kid was a very, very young age, could have been around two, three, five years old, imagine being engaged at five years old, right? Or sometimes it even happened prior to your birth, right? They would be uh, uh, engaged. And families that shared the same value and social standing would say, well, look, you know, and this, this has happened once I had a kid and, like, my friend had a kid that was of the opposite sex. We'd be like, hey, well, how cool would it be if they got married later on, right? It was more of like a, you know, like, what, what if type thing. But in their time, they were like, hey, if I have a kid and you have a kid, just shake hands, sign a contract, they're getting married. <laughs> So they would say, you know, if you have a daughter and I have a son, let's agree now that they marry each other. And it was always up to the father to arrange with other fathers to whom his son or daughter would be engaged. Could you imagine if your father was the one to pick your spouse, right? So that was the first step, right? It was, it was, a, it was a simple contract that... This is what we agreed upon, right? And oftentimes you wouldn't know, you obviously wouldn't know who each other were. You wouldn't have seen each other. The second step, the second stage was the betrothal. This is the ceremony where mutual promises were made. So the engagement led to the betrothal and usually between the ages of 12 and 15 for a young lady. And at this point, the bride and the groom would probably meet for the first time and the father of the groom would negotiate the bride's price. So there would be a price. Now, I, this seems like it comes as a shock, but this is all throughout the Old Testament. Now, you guys must not remember some of the stories, right? Remember the, the famous story of, um, was it Jacob? Jacob, who worked 14 years 
well, seven years and then another seven years. And, and once, you, once you read that story and you understand how their, their, their culture worked, you understand, oh, I, I get why, um, what's it, was it Laban was the father? Yeah. Laban gave away Leah. Was it Leah? The one that was less beautiful? First, right? Because, now hear me out. I'm just saying what the Bible said. I don't take it up with, with the Bible. So the bride's price. The price would be based on, on three variables. First, it was based on the, on the father's wealth. If the father the groom was a rich man, he would pay a high price so that he wouldn't look like a cheapskate, which I would have probably done that. Second, the price would be determined by the, the bride's worth. If she was attracted or gifted, her bride price would be higher. And then third, the price was based upon the groom's work. In some cases, it was up to the groom to pay that price. Now, when a couple was betrothed, understand this, they were under the obligation of faithfulness, and it was, it was such a big contract and deal that if they were ever to separate, it was considered a divorce. That there would, that, that like nowadays, when we get engaged, it's like, well, I don't want to get engaged. See you later, right? Now, if you get married and divorced, it is not an easy thing. It's easier to get married than it is to get divorced. I don't know if you understand that. In our time today, even then, when they got betrothed, before they got married, it was considered if they were to separate, they had to get divorced. So it was not just a casual promise, right? It was not just a, a casual thing that we like to do today, where one week I got a boyfriend or girlfriend, and then the next week I got a different boyfriend or girlfriend, right? It's not a very casual thing like it is today. So the third step then would be the marriage. And I'm not going to get into the whole process of it. We could spend the whole time talking about it, but I'm not going to. The third step was the marriage. So approximately one year after the betrothal, when the, bride, the bridegroom would then come for his bride at an unexpected time. So understand we're in stage two, where she's a young woman. She's probably 15, 16, 17 years old. She's about to be married, right, to Joseph. And they were under legal contract to be married, okay? And it was at this time that they would stay pure, they would stay abstinent. And so for, for her to, uh, to be with another man, it would, in that culture, it's not just like a, oh man, that was not a good thing you did. It was, we're going to stone you and kill you type thing, all right? So understand that. There's a lot of faith that's happening on Mary's part when the angel of the Lord comes and says, well, you're going to be pregnant. And she's going to be like, well, how the heck am I going to tell everyone that it wasn't me and Joseph, but God through a miracle has done this, right? Like if there was anyone to hide it, Elizabeth did it, it would have been Mary, right? So uh, the next step again was to get married again, uh, the bridegroom, and, th and that's a whole thing. And as you understand the marriage ceremony, you understand uh, the end times, you understand the reasoning and how and the way that Jesus comes back for his bridegroom, which is us, the church, right? So let's continue. Verse 27. So the virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about, not only just the betrothal, but the fact that she was a virgin. Uh, I got young kids in here, so I'm not going to get into details exactly what that is. Uh, I'm sure all of you understand what that is, so we're, we're good on that. So Mary was a virgin. That's important, okay? That's something that we're not to neglect or to gloss over. 
it's important that we understand that Mary was a virgin. There's many people who teach that it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you don't have to believe it, it's not important, but it's very, very important. There's two things that are impacted by this truth. One, biblical reliability, right? The Bible told us, and it foretold us, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So if she's not a virgin, then the Bible is a liar, right? But the Bible is not a liar. It tells the truth, hence she was a virgin. So biblical reliability. Again, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Anybody know what Emmanuel means? God with us. So the New Testament, it's pretty consistent that Mary was pregnant before she got married and she was a virgin. So the Bible is correct in what it says. The second, um, the second truth that we see from this, that her being a virgin, is that uh, it gives us a perfect sacrifice through Jesus Christ, right? Now, we are sinners, correct? Every single one of us in this room is a sinner for two reasons. One, we are born with a sin nature, and two, we commit sin, right? Now, once you guys have kids, you will understand you will never have to teach them to sin, ever. It just comes like that because it's natural to us as human beings because we're born with a sin nature. We see that in Romans chapter 5 when it talks about through Adam, sin has, has been passed down, right? Through Adam. Adam being a man, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So for Jesus to be the perfect and acceptable sacrifice for our sins, he had to be completely without sin and without blemish. Okay? Without sin and without blemish. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever thought of this, just logically. How, how is it that Jesus was born human, but without sin? Right? So he's born human, and God, but he was born without sin. How, does that, how, how did Jesus not sin when he was, you know, two, three years old? Well, here's the answer. Born of a virgin woman, right, conceived not of man, but of the Holy Spirit. And if Romans tells us that sin is passed down through the male lineage, then we can understand that if he doesn't have a earthly father, then the sin nature was never passed down to Jesus. Yet, I want you to understand that he was tempted in every way that we were tempted. Okay? Exodus chapter 12, verse 5 says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Again, Jesus did not commit any sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did not have a sin nature. 1 John 3, 5, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was without sin. He was without blemish. And when he died, because of that, he was able to pay for our sins. A sinner could not pay for it. A sinless human had to pay for it, and that was Jesus. And it all starts here with the conception uh, through Mary, the Holy Spirit. It's important. So the virgin birth is important. It's absolutely important. And one of the things, and I want to I go over really quick again the fact about um, the male passing on sin nature, okay? I want to look at this really quick. Now, 
Jesus had parents on earth. Who were they? Mary and Joseph, right? Now, Joseph was not the biological father. Sound like I'm on Mori or something. Jerry Springer. Joseph, you are not the father, right? <laughs> Joseph was not the father. Who was the father? The father. Good job. Yeah, you're 100% right. God, because what we're going to see is that he's going to be called, and you shall call him, what Gabriel's going to tell us, the son of God. Now, one of the, I'm, I'm trying not to make this weird, but I need to say this. One of the unique things about Christianity, which is, it, it, it's unique and it's specific to Christianity, out of all the other religions or uh, made-up fables and, and fairy tales and you know, when, you, when I think of, like, just something to relate with you guys, Marvel, right? And you think of the gods that are in the Marvel movies and, you know, Greek history and all that. And Zeus, and he lays with an earthly woman and then, you know, makes a half-man, half-god type thing, right? You guys have heard of that. Um, uh, the guy in Marvel, what's his name? No, yes. You're not wrong. No, no, Chris Pratt, what's his character? Star-Lord, right? So that's an example right there. Remember, the whole... Spoiler, the whole movie starts off with him and his mom, right? Yes. <laughs> Gets really weird. Now, technically, he's a god, right? So he, he holds the infinity stone. He doesn't die. They're like, how can a mere mortal do that? They find out, well, he's half god, right? It's because a god was with an earthly woman. This is not the case, okay? There was, there was nothing weird like that happening. So uniquely to Christianity, when, when Mary conceived, it was through a miracle, okay? It was through a miracle. It was not in the same way that everyone, everyone else conceived, even in the same sense of how the awesome miracle of Elizabeth and Zacharias were able to conceive. They did it through human means, but it was also still, still a miracle. But with Mary, it was the Holy Spirit coming upon her Right? We see that right here. The Holy Spirit comes upon her. That's what makes it so unique about Christianity. So I need you to understand that, because then we're going to read about two different, linea two different genealogies. Okay? Well, we're not going to read it, because we don't have time. But you can read it on your own. Two different genealogies of Jesus. Okay? So we've got Mary, and we've got Joseph. Joseph's not the biological father, yet he is his father. How, is, how does that happen? Adoption. There we go. You guys are smart, right? So, he is legally Jesus' father. He is seen as Jesus' father. My stepmom adopted me when she married my father, and she is legally my mother, right? Although she did not birth me. In the same sense with Jesus and Joseph. Now, with the two different genealogies of Jesus, we see one in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, which we'll get to in a few months, uh, where there's two different, it's the same, bear with me, there's the same genealogy of Jesus, but they're different. Because what we see is one with Joseph's genealogy, tracing it back through Joseph, and one through Mary, right? And the unique thing that we see about it is they both come from David, right? They both come from David. And it was through David that it was promised that the Messiah would be born and take over the throne, that it would be through David's seed. But there's something interesting that I want you guys to see. Joseph, according to the genealogy of Matthew, 
was a descendant of David through his son Solomon, okay, and thus of the royal family. And according to the prophecies, the Messiah had to be from the seed of David. But through Joseph, Jesus could never claim the throne of David. Anybody know why? That, and there's one other thing. There's one more thing. Through Solomon's line, there was one descendant who was cursed and said, through your lineage, they will not occupy the throne. And according to Matthew, Joseph was a descendant of Jeconias, who was cut off by God from any of his descendants ever occupying the throne. Okay, so understand this. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30 says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So that's where Joseph, his line came from that line that said, well, your descendant will not sit on the throne, okay? They were cursed because of the sin this guy committed. Now, through Mary's genealogy to Jesus, uh, Jesus does sit on the throne of David, and Mary's descent comes from David as well, but it, rather than through his son Solomon, comes through his son, anybody know? Nathan. Okay, I know this is hard to follow, but bear with me. Both genealogies had to be recorded to establish Christ's rule to rule, uh, Christ's right to rule on David's throne. Joseph, Joseph's genealogy shows that Christ was a legal descendant of Jeconias and thus legally could not sit on the throne of David and the nation of Judah by inheriting the right solely through Joseph naturally. But when Joseph, who was descended from David, married Mary, this also constituted his legal adoption to the son she would bear. And you see this through the language Matthew uses in the genealogy. It reflects this legal understanding by saying Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus was Mary's son descended from Nathan, and Jesus can inherit and rule over Judah because of Mary's marriage to Joseph. So Jesus bypasses the curse because he's not of the lineage, right? He wasn't born of Joseph, yet he was also adopted by Joseph. And there's something beautiful about that because we, when, we, when we think of ourselves and we think of our Father in heaven, it's not that we are uh, the seeds of God, right? We're not, we're not from God. We are actually, how are we legally his, not legally, but how are we his sons and daughters? Through what? Adoption, right? He adopts us. The Bible tells us that he adopts us, right? And because he adopts us, we can legally inherit all the things uh, that the Father gives us, right? And that's a ton of things. You can look at it in Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to. So it's through this adoption. So this allows, us, allows two things to, pre- to be revealed about Jesus. One, that he was not naturally from the lineage of Jokonias, who was cursed, and yet the promise was still fulfilled. And two, he did not inherit the sin nature, which is passed down through the male line, which comes through the fathers, obviously. Jesus is the only one, obviously, besides Adam. He's the only one, and Adam was created by God. He's the only one that did not have an earthly father. Every other single person ever to exist has had an earthly father. 
Correct? Correct. Dude, don't do that to me. <laughs> Same thing as Adam. They were both created by God. So, and she was taken from man. So understand that. Verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So really quick, just to point this out. Mary had an earthly father, which means she had a sin nature, which means that she sinned, which means that she's no more better than you and I. Okay? She's not up there with Jesus. She's not somebody who is, you know, considered a God or can bestow grace upon us or, or do. She's not even anyone we can pray to. Okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that. So, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he says, Our Father, who art in heaven, right? Not. Our mother Mary, who may be in heaven. No, she <laughs> But there is something special about Mary, just not in the way that Catholicism sees her. She is special because she is the one that is chosen to bear the Son of God. And we see that right here. The angel says three things to Mary in verse 28. She says, he says, rejoice, highly favored one. That's the first thing. Two, the Lord is with you. And three, blessed are you among women. So she was highly favored. Right? The Lord was with her, and she was blessed. Three things that the angel says to her. Mary was special in that sense. But we have to understand, she was just like you and me. She was a sinner who needed a Savior. So she needed Jesus just as much as we need Jesus. She just had the unique opportunity to be used by God to bear Jesus. And the funny thing about those three things about Mary being highly favored, that the Lord is with her and that she's blessed, those are all three things that you and I as believers receive, right? That we, through Jesus, are highly favored as Mary. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. That the Lord is continually with us. We see that in Matthew 28, 20. And that we are immensely blessed. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. So he says these three things to her. And in verse 29, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Now, when an angel appeared to a human, they always were afraid, right? And it was usually because of just the presence. But here we see that Mary wasn't so much afraid as she was perplexed and confused. That's what that word troubled means. She was confused. And not so much at the appearing of the angel, but by what he said right? She's like, wait. She like bypasses the whole thing that the angel appears to her and says something to her, and she's like, you really, like, she's surprised to hear that there's such extravagant words and nice things that this angel is saying about her. It's as if, and it is, that Mary, we can see her humility in all of this, right? That she's like, really? Like, you, you think that, you know, I'm highly favored and that I'm, I'm blessed among women and that the Lord is with me? So she was confused, she was troubled, she was perplexed. And the angel responds to her and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So the angel continues and he says these things. The Greek word for favor, understand this. When he says that you have found favor with God, the Greek word for favor is translated into the word that we use for grace. You have found grace, right? That you were chosen. We have to understand that this 
opportunity, this privilege, was not based on her righteousness. Okay? It was not based on her faith. It was not based on any type of work she did. It was not based on uh, her age or anything. What was it based on? The choosing of God, his grace, right? That she was picked by the grace of God. The privilege bestowed upon her was not a reward for her purity or righteousness. It was a gift of God's grace. And even though she was a young woman of faith, and that's something to, to be seen, it wasn't because of that. It was a choice of grace in the same sense, guys, that we cannot obtain anything from God by, by our works, but yet we receive grace upon his choosing, upon his bestowing. The angel tells her that you will conceive him in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What's the name Jesus mean? Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Verse 32, he will be great. Was Jesus great? Yes, he was, even though not in the eyes of the people that saw him, right? In the time that he was alive, but he was great. And the Lord tells us that if you want to be great, you have to do what? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Well, yes. <laughs> Who is the great outside of God? We're talking about humans. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? You guys are killing me. The least. Is that what you guys said? The least. If you want to be great, you've got to be the least. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. Right? So Jesus was great. He said, and he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So all the prophecies in times past in Isaiah and others that prophesied that it would be born of a virgin, that he would take over the throne, all the promises made to David that said that you one day, through your seed, the Messiah will come and sit upon your throne, has now, it is now coming to pass. And the angel of the Lord is confirming it here in verse 32. He goes on to say in verse 33 that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. How awesome is that? that of his kingdom there will be no end. Every single kingdom that has ever been had will one day, has, has either ended or one day will end. But with God's kingdom, with Jesus' kingdom, there will be no end. Now when Jesus first came, when we see here, when he first comes, his focus was saving us from our sins. But his second coming, we talked about he will come as a king. He will come to literally establish his kingdom on earth. And 700 years earlier, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He will be great, and he will be called the son of highest. The Jews then, and even still today, state the reason for them not believing that Jesus was the Messiah is because he made the claims that he was the son of God, that he was the son of the highest. Isn't that crazy? 
John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also that God was his father, making him equal with God. They were looking for a man to save them, right? Just like in, in the Old Testament, when they read all the stories of, of the men, say, we talk about Joshua, we talk about Moses, all these great men that came and saved the nation of Israel, but they saved them and they led them in a physical sense, and they, they themselves were being led by God. And so they did not believe when Jesus said that I am the Son of God, they did not believe that. Because by saying that Jesus is the Son of God, and we're going to see that in verse 35, that makes him equal to God. So let's continue. The end of verse 32, he says, I will give him the throne of his father David. Again, this was prophesied to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You guys can read that on your own time. Verse 34, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? So in two weeks, now we have seen Gabriel go to two different people, and both responded with a question. Now, when Zacharias responded with a question, it came from doubt. It came from unbelief. It was basically like, well, prove it to me. Show me a sign. How is this to be so? Right? And we see that it's unbelief based also not only on what he says, but the response of Gabriel and then him shutting up his mouth. Right? Now, with, with Mary, she also asks a question, but her question not only affirms her virginity because she says, well, how can this be because I've never been with a man? right? But it was also a logical question, and it was a question that did not come from a skeptical unbelief, but more of a wonder-filled faith, an awe, curiosity. It's not that she didn't believe that this would happen. It was more of just like, oh, really? Like, how are you going to do that, right? Like, okay, that's, but I, I mean, I can't think beyond my mind that I've never been with a man, and I can't be with a man, so how is that going to happen, right? And that's why we don't see her being punished the way that Zacharias was punished. There was no consequences because there was no doubt. There was no unbelief. She had faith. And Gabriel says, the power of the highest will overshadow you. Right? Again, so Gabriel answers and he tells her again how this is going to happen. The word overshadow means to cover with a cloud, as in the cloud of Shekinah glory, which you see in the Old Testament, or the cloud of transformation or transfiguration, which we see in the New Testament in the Gospels. And again, I want to point this out, this, this delicate expression, somebody said this, rules out crude ideas of mating of the Holy Spirit with Mary. It was, I don't want to say it was a simple miracle, but it was just, it was a miracle. Verse 35 goes on to say that that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. We talked about this. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was born, correct? How do we know that? Because he's always been the Son of God, right? So the angel just says, you will call him the Son of God, recognizing his nature from all of eternity. And he goes on in verse 36. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. So now... Uh, the angel reveals to her that her, her relative, Elizabeth, also has conceived, and it's also been a miracle. And in verse 37, he goes on to say, For with God, nothing will be impossible. 
This isn't one of those verses, guys, that we take out of context and we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not one of those verses where if I have God, I can do anything, right? Now, technically speaking, God can do anything, but that's not what this verse means, okay? What does it mean? Let's break it down. In the Greek language, the Greek text actually reads something like this, okay? Every word from God will not be impossible, or no word will be impossible for God. Basically, what it means is if God says something, it's going to happen, right? God's word is true. And so that's comforting, not just for Mary, but it's for all of us because this entirety of this book is filled with God's word and many different promises for those who follow Jesus. And with that, we understand that even though it sounds crazy and it sounds like, you know, like it's never obtainable, that even salvation and the grace of God is something that it cannot be obtained, yet the word tells us that if God says it can, then it is possible. Verse 38, let's close here. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, we see her response, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. So remember, this young teenage girl, an angel appears to her, tells her this insane thing, and she responds by saying, yes, you're right, I'm the, I'm the maidservant, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a servant of God, right? We see the humility and the second thing we see is that she says, let it be uh, according to your word. She simply has faith and she believes. At a young age, even though everything is going to go against her, right? Everything's going to go against her because she is betrothed to a man to be married. And if she were to step outside of that betrothal, and if she were to be found not a virgin, and hence being pregnant is a pretty obvious sign, right? <laughs> Something you can't hide. Nobody's going to be like, you know, if any of you, I'm not going to say it. All right. (laughs) Nobody would believe at the onset that the way that she got pregnant was through the Holy Spirit overcoming her, right? Or, or, Or coming upon her. So it's something that she had to think about. And even in all that and understanding all the things that she was about to face, you know, all the suspicion, uh, even the potential of the death penalty for her, adult- her adultery, um, she had faith, and she believed. She said, if you say so, according to your word, I will do it. She was obedient. And at that point, the angel left her and departed. And next week, we will get into the visit that Mary has with Elizabeth, and uh, yeah, we'll continue through. Let's pray. You guys get out of here. And I'll see you Wednesday night. We got service at 7. If I don't see you Wednesday, I'll see you Sunday. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the miracle that we see through the conception of Mary. Lord, how you, through a miracle, through the Holy Spirit, she was able to conceive as a virgin or to give birth to our Savior who became a human a perfect human, a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Lord, you, you did everything <laughs> perfectly. Everything was prophesied to a T. Everything happened to a T. Everything that needed to happen for our salvation happened, and it was all because of you, and I thank you for that. All the grace and the mercy that was bestowed upon us. 
So Lord, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.